legacy and the heritage that they are. I have a, you know, we like to do a giveaway every Saturday at the City Life Church, so I've got a, a Starbucks gift card just in case you don't have that app on your phone yet, right? So I have a saying, you're going to have to work for it. I have a saying that I like to use to describe the church. I've said it often that's pet related. Anybody, any takers? That's pet related. And, it, and it's used to describe the church and the journey and the growth that we're in. Any takers? All right. I've been saying it for three years. All right. You think about it. Oh, Juice is going to, you're going to make a stab at it? A puppy with big feet. Come on. There you go. Nice. You ever seen that? Pastor Mike Hale, I just saw you. It's good to have you here tonight, brother. He pastors Hope Community Church, who's the anchor church on here on Sunday morning. So thanks for being with us tonight, brother. Come on. You ever seen a puppy with big feet? When I was in college, someone uh, broke into our house and and uh, my mom came home from the store, and they were going out the back door. She was coming in the front door, and so the next day they went out and bought a dog. It was half Great Dane and half Doberman. It looked like a deer. It was a beast. <laughs> and when it was little, when it was a puppy, my dad would hold that dog on, on his lap, and the biggest thing about that dog were its feet, huge feet. We know that, you know, at its prime, he weighed 130 pounds. He was a human being. He was a human being. But you looked at him early on, and you knew that there was growth that was in there. And I feel that about our church, that we're a puppy with big feet. There's a foundation that's here. And one of the ways that we know we have big feet is that we have people in the church who are able to bring the word of God from the pulpit. Come on. And Justin White and Nick Hocannon, for the last two weeks, while we've been on vacation, if you could just say thank you to them. Come on. What a phenomenal job that they did. While we were out of town, Nick launched us into our River Series two weeks ago, and then Juice uh, last Saturday bringing that great message for us and our first sermon uh, in, the, uh, in the series, and so we just so appreciate them, and they're, they're a part of the sign of what's to come for our congregation, and I know Christy's not in here because she's, she's always doing something. I couldn't do my job if she wasn't always doing the things that she does. But if you see her tonight, if you could just say thank you to her, because we would not have been able to unplug and get away for the two weeks to get the rest that we needed, that we appreciate you guys letting us to do that. Christy is a huge part of just us being able to minister in the church, all the work that she does. So if you see her, if you could just say, Christy, thank you for everything that you do. And you can thank Tim, too, because he's a big part of that as well, because I know that she's oftentimes working late into the evening. So thank you, Tim, for your grace in that. And then the events team, come on, did you enjoy that picnic last Saturday? Unbelievable. It's our third one. We had over 200 people here for that. It was our biggest one yet. What an incredible journey uh, it's been for us as a church. And to see those events just hit new markers. And the events life team, if you're on the events life team, can you raise your hand? Come on. Raise your hand. Come on. There you go. Come on, all the work that you did to make that such an incredible day. It was just a phenomenal experience for our church to come together and just enjoy one another, laugh together, eat together. Come on, we like to eat together. And uh, just the fellowship of the body of Christ, the family of God, it just enriches our hearts, doesn't it? Puppy with big feet. Come on, we're on a journey as a church. So we're in this summer series called Rivers. Does your life have flow? And it's 
a springboard off of the idea of the 12 pathways that we teach and talk about and have been talking about here at the church for these last three years. We call them pathways because they lead you into the depths of eternal life. If you want to experience the eternal life that we've been talking about already in our service tonight, you don't have to sit around wondering how can I get there. The Bible gives us some very clear pathways that we can begin to journey down that takes us into the depths of eternal life that Jesus Christ paid such a great price for us to have. Scripture, worship, fasting, gathering, relationship, reaching, stewardship, service, and accountability, prayer, generosity, and rest. And we talk about those 12 pathways so often about how they bring life into us, but this summer series is about how those same 12 pathways are outflows of life from you into the world around you. We know that reading the Bible gives us life, but one of the questions that we're going to answer and talk about together in the summer series is how does reading the Bible help me to be life-giving to people around me? We know that entering into expressive worship and just getting lost into the presence of God, that it brings life deep to our soul. But we're going to be talking about in this summer series about how entering into expressive worship, come on, it's life-giving to the people who are around us. And so let me share these verses with you. It's in John 4, 13 through 14. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. John 4, beginning in verse 13. Says Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give to him will never get thirsty again ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. This idea that the pathways, they're life-giving to us. But then it turns a little bit. If you turn over to John 7, if you take a right turn in your Bible... This is what Nick cracked open for us a couple of weeks ago. 37, 38. It says, On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. Same conversation he had with the woman at the well. The one who believes in me, as Scripture has said, will have streams of living water that will flow out from deep within him. See, it turns. See, not only is this eternal life that Jesus gives to us, does it give life to us. It's supposed to give life to everyone who's around us. And it's interesting that the pathways that bring the life into us are the same pathways that enable us to be life-giving to people around. Have you ever been around someone and you say, they just suck the life out of me? I know it's not anybody here in this room, but you know, right? You've ever had that experience with somebody? It might not be forever, but it might just, there was a resounding yes. I just heard that, right? Yes. They can see their face right now. Come on. We don't want to be those people in the world. It doesn't mean that we don't have bad days. It doesn't mean that we don't have bad moments. But how are we characterized? If we have the spirit of the living God deep inside of us, then we should be a people that's not sucking the life out of the world around us because there's an eternal river and Jesus says, actually, they're rivers that should be flowing out of us, life-giving to the world around us. Our lives need to have flow. Our words, our attitudes, our reactions, our choices, our example, life-giving. Come on, to everyone around us, not just the people we like, not just the people that we enjoy being around, not just the people that we have a, a, a natural ability to get along with because we're personality compatible, but to everyone, it says, every. Everybody. 
life-giving. The 12 pathways, they make it possible. Rivers of living water out of us and into the world. So we're going to launch out with accountability tonight. I know just seeing the word pop up on the screen, it makes you cringe, doesn't it? So let's just, let's build on that. We like participation here at the City Life Church. When you see that word accountability, just your knee-jerk reaction, like a flashcard moment, what's the feeling or the thought that comes to you initially? Somebody, come on. David, responsible for your actions. Sherry, someone that helps you be responsible. Yeah, yeah. Kevin, complete necessity. Come on, that's good. Who else? Any more hands? Ben, be honest in everything that you do. Come on, holding your feet to the fire. I like it. Did I see another hand come up over here? Yes, ma'am. Integrity. Somebody else. Well, no hands have come up into this section, not to give you any pressure. There you go, Gregory. Transparency. That's an important one for us at the City Life Church. Yes, sir. Being able to justify your answers. Absolutely, that you can be able to stand on your word. Celeste. Protection. Yes, come on. Accountability is something that even though when we first begin to think about it, even though when, when maybe somebody tries to bring it into our lives, there's a part of us that might bristle a little bit. It's an important part of not just life coming into us, it's an important part of life going out of us into the world. So when you look into history, who are some people that you can think of that have been models of accountability? People that walked in it. Come on, Sabra, there you go. Nathaniel, yes. Yes, that's right. Nathan the prophet to David when he had hidden sin, the prophet came. What's that? Yep, come on, that's good. That's nice work. Bible example. I think we should give Sabra the other Starbucks gift card for that one up here. Come on, come on. Nice. Don't, don't let Scotty get that. Come on. We see him eyeing that thing. Somebody else, a person in history. Chuck. Yes, David and Samuel with Uriah. Somebody else. Person in history. Reading, how many people are reading the book, the biography that's come out recently on Diedrich Bonhoeffer? Anybody reading that? Come on. An incredible person who's a picture who lived his life in accountability. Come on, one more. Somebody else. Mike. Timothy, yes. Come on, Timothy, a great picture of a person who lived his life in accountability. I would suggest to you tonight that Jesus Christ is the most accountable person that's ever walked upon the face of this earth. It's interesting to think along those lines, isn't it? Because in the world's economy, oftentimes the people that have the most authority are the people that are the least accountable. Often, right? Anybody have a boss like that at work? Nobody at the City Life Church, raise your hand, please, right? Come on. The people that often have the most authority and the most power, the most influence, that oftentimes in our society, they're the people that are the least accountable. But in the kingdom of God, it's just the opposite. The more authority that God gives to you, the more accountability that he expects you to have. 
the more power that he entrusts you with, the more giftings that he bestows upon you, the greater the degree of accountability he expects you to have. And Jesus Christ is the perfect picture of the person who had ultimate authority but had the most accountability of any other person that's ever walked upon the face of this earth. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, this is just before he ascended into heaven, I have been given all, not partial, not some, not just a promotion, all authority in heaven and on earth. And I don't think that that means that it had just been given to him because he had died on the cross, that he had risen from the dead. I don't think that he's saying to them, now that I've done this, my father's given me authority. I think he's saying to the disciples from the foundations of the earth, I've had all authority given to me in both the heavens and on the earth. From the day that I was born into this world as a human being, I still had it and I've carried it with me and I still have it as I go back into the heavens to continue to do the work that the Father has for me as we build his kingdom together. All authority, he said, has been given to him. Just as much as the Father has, so too it's been given to the Son. So what must it have been like for Jesus for the first 30 years of his life? Can you imagine? What would you be like in middle school? I know, come on, it's good, isn't it? You're on the playground, and Billy pushes you down. And you have all the power of the universe at your disposal. Are you with me? I'm telling you, Jesus, he got pushed down on the playground at the rabbinical school of his neighborhood. Jesus didn't walk around as the savior of the world as a child. He got picked on. He got made fun of. He got ridiculed. People pushed him down on the playground, and he did nothing about it. Come on. He was a man, even in his youth, who was the picture of restraint. The local rabbi wasn't walking around. Has anybody seen Gabriel? No, we haven't seen Gabriel since he pushed Jesus down during recess today at school. Has anybody seen Gabriel? Every tragic death he witnessed, every famine that his family endured, every drought in his community, every sickness that came upon a neighbor that he loved and had a friendship with, sermons that he sat through that he just cringed because they just weren't telling the truth evil that he faced, storms that he watched, ravaged villages, the sin that was rampant in people's lives that he deeply cared for, he did not intervene because it was not yet his time. Could you do it? Oh, I couldn't. I couldn't do it. The restraint that we lack, even with the limited power and authority that we have, can you imagine if we had all the power of the universe? And that's what he had. And that's what he had. He was a man who had it all, and he walked in accountability like no one has ever walked in accountability from the beginning of time until time comes to an end. Luke 12, 48b, the second part of that verse. When someone has been given much, Scripture tells us, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, 
even more will be required. And oftentimes we think of that verse being used in the sense that if you have lots of giftings that have been entrusted to you, you need to not withhold those giftings, right? Too much is given, much is required. That, I mean, that's just a phrase that even people that aren't familiar with the Bible, that's just part of the local vernacular. It's born out of Scripture right here in Luke chapter 12. Too much is given, much is required. So we understand that part that there's an expectation upon you to utilize the giftings that you have to not withhold them from the world. But another part of this idea of to whom much is given, much is required is the idea of accountability. It's a big verse. It's a big truth. To whom much is given, much is required in the sense that you have to exercise restraint. To much is given, much is required in the sense that you've got to discern the will of God for your life in the moment that you're in. Too much is given, much is required in the sense that if your life has been entrusted with much, God expects you to be accountable much, to be a person that walks in the accountings of life that Scripture gives to us. Listen to what it says about Jesus in John 5.30 is the top one, 6.38 is the bottom one. So I can do nothing on my own. He's not speaking of limitation. He had no limitation. He's speaking of the restraint and the accountability that he yielded himself to because of his relationship with the Father. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. It's powerful, isn't it, to think that Jesus had a will sometimes that might have been different from the Father. Now, I know that can be a theologically dangerous statement, so let me explain that to you. His divinity never had a will that was different from his father. But when he yielded himself to humanity, he took on all that humanity gives. So the book of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way. So the divine part of who he was always walked in oneness with the father. But he had a human mind. He had human emotions. He had human desires. There were times in his life where his humanity, he had to deal with that humanity. There was times in his life where he had to say to his humanity, we're not doing that because the Father has a will and we're submitted to that will. Come on, we like to say all the time, you've got to minister to yourself as a Christian. You've got to talk to yourself. Body, we're not going there. Eyes, that's not where we're looking. Mind, we're not going to think those thoughts. Memory, we're not going to recall that offense from my past. Jesus had a will in his humanity that he faced, as the book of Hebrews said, tempted in every way that we are. So you can't look at his divinity and say it was easy for him. It was not easy for Christ. He had the same struggles that you and I faced. It's part of the miracle of his sinless life. He was subjected to all the things that we're subjected to. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own. 1 Corinthians 15, come on, these are powerful verses right here. 27 to 28. For the scriptures say, Paul here is quoting Psalm 8, 6. For God has put all things under his, speaking of Jesus, under his authority. And then Paul goes on to explain. Of course, when it says all things under his authority, that does not include God himself who gave Christ authority. Verse 28. Then when all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority so that God who gave his Son authority over all things will be utterly supreme over everything Everywhere. So the question I hope that you're being pressed with tonight, have you put yourself under the authority of the creator of the universe? 
Have you put your life under the authority of the sovereign creator of the universe? Because like Christ, you and I, we have a will. There's times where we want to do things a certain way. We want to say things to people in a certain manner, choosing certain words, depending upon the circumstance that we're in. And oftentimes, those things that we want to do, those things that we want to say, the actions that we want to take, the places that we want to live, the relationships that we want to run after, and the jobs that we want to take hold of have nothing to do with God's plan and His will for our lives. Something inside of us has got to rise up like it rose up in Christ and say, I'm trusting my Father. He's given me a measure of authority. I have a measure of authority as a person in this world over my life, over my resources, to a degree, over my family. I have a realm. We launched out the whole year with this idea of change your world. You've been given a garden that you're supposed to exercise domain over. We cannot have a domain over our gardens that's life-giving to us and the people around us unless we first recognize that the Creator He's in charge and that our heart is fully submitted to who he is and his plans and purposes for our lives. Scripture gives us what I like to call five life accountings. I'm not going to go through each of these verses, so if you're a note taker, you can write those down, and maybe that's going to be something that you can dig around in a little bit this week. But there are five life accountings that we find in Scripture, and the first one is Scripture. The second one are vows that we make. The third one are life roles, church, family, and God callings, the five life accountings. And so if you're a person, as we're working through this message tonight, and you're thinking to yourself, I need some more accountability in my life, these are the five that you want to look at. These are the ones that you want to say, am I, how am I doing in this one? Do I need to increase that one? Because you need to not just have one or two or three or four, come on, you need to have all five of these working in your life. And the verses that I'm giving to you are examples of how Jesus his life was held in account by these accountings. Every one of these verses are referencing life roles. Mark 6, 3 talks about Jesus' brothers and sisters. Come on, he had responsibilities because of his life roles, because he had a family. You don't think that he had brothers and sisters that sometimes he didn't get along with? You don't think sometimes late at night he's laying in bed going, oh, if they only knew what I could do to them. His life was held into account of the relationships that he had that God had given to him that were important. This idea of a church family in Matthew 12, 46 through 50, it talks about when his family came and, and, and people came and said, your family's outside the door waiting for you. Jesus said, no, these people, this is my brother, this is my mother, this is my sister. He wasn't demoting his earthly family. He was promoting his spiritual family. That verse is not intended to demean our family of origin and our family of creation. It's intended to remind us of the value that God puts upon the spiritual family. It's a life accounting that we've got to be held to. God callings, John 17, 4, all five of those. I want to encourage you to dig around into those this week. Those are the ways that your life is going to be held into account. So I want to Come on, time permitting, we're going to try to hit three of these tonight. I want to talk to you about three character attributes that we see in the life of Christ. And I want you to, to trust me here tonight, and you're going to see it as we work through it, that these things, they're not coincidental, they're causal. Meaning that because Jesus' life was held in account, he was a person who was haltingly humble. 
He wasn't haltingly humble. He wasn't others-minded and always sensitive to other people just by virtue that God put that in him and deposited and he didn't have to work for it. Come on, that was an outflow of the fact that his life was held in account. His humility, his sensitivity, his other-mindedness was born out of the fact that his life was held into those five accountings. And it should be an outflow from you. You show me a person who lacks humility, I'll show you a person who lacks accountability. You show me a person whose life is not haltingly humble like the life of Christ, I'll show you a person who needs to invest in their accountability so that that outflow of their life can begin to come. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen talks about Jesus' life being poured out for us. Philippians 2, 3, 4, I'm telling you, as a church, if we never did anything else right that the Bible told us to do, if we did this one thing right, we would change the world. We would change the world. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Come on, I know. Say, oh my goodness. You're right? How many of us are going to wake up tomorrow and say, you know, I just, every person I meet today, I just want to think of them as better than myself. Every person. It's not easy, is it? Come on, if we could get a hold of that one thing, I'm telling you, we could change the world. How many arguments would your, with your spouse would you have not had if you have thought of them as better than yourself? I know, come on. We're coming right into your backyard right now. You were hoping I was going to go with a stranger at the grocery store. I know, I know. Come on. How many family disputes would have been avoided? Maybe relationships that is fractured and people that you haven't even spoken to for years. How many of those would be remedied if you would think of them as better than yourself, we would change the world. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Jesus Christ, because his life was held in account, his humility always saw and served. So let me throw these questions to you. Does your life have flow? How am I serving others? What attitudes of entitlement do I have that need to change? What about my life says I'm in this for myself? They're not easy questions to overlay onto yourself, are they? They're not easy questions for us to begin to wrestle with. They're not easy questions for us to honestly take a look at. And if you're really courageous, which that's where we're going next, conversationally courageous. If you're really courageous, you'll give these questions to a couple of people who know you better than anybody else and say, don't hold anything back. I want you to write some things down that you think about me. Come on. You with me? You give these lists to your husband. You give this list to your wife. Parents, give this list to your children. You give this list to your children and say, I want you to write some things down on this piece of paper. I won't punish you, I promise, right? Come on, write some things down on this piece of paper from maybe some areas where I need to grow in my life. If our lives are held in account well, we are going to walk through this world haltingly humble. It gives other people pause because of the humility that's in us because our life is submitted to the Father and his way of living. Number two, come on, conversationally courageous. Conversationally courageous. A life that is held in account is conversationally courageous. John 8, 11. 
Jesus says to the woman who was caught in adultery, go and sin no more. He gives her grace. He gives her a pass on the punishment that she deserved according to the Mosaic law that she was accountable to for her day. But Jesus says, no, come on. He who, what? That's right. He who's without sin, you cast the first stone. Come on, and everybody walked away. It says from the oldest to the youngest, right? Because the oldest, they had a bigger list. They're like, oh, that's not me, right? But in the end, he didn't leave her there because Jesus was conversationally courageous. Grace isn't grace unless there's a charge that comes along with it to change. Saying you're forgiven, that's not grace alone. Grace is you're forgiven Walk into the transformation that Christ can give to your life. That's grace. Jesus was conversationally courageous. He was not afraid to say the hard things in the hard moments, but he always said it in the right way with a heart, come on, that was loving to the person that was receiving. Never in your life do you see him venting. Even in the two times of his life where he's turning over the money-changing tables, that's a righteous indignation. Jesus is not just having a bad day. Are you with me? Every moment of Jesus' life when he brought a correction to somebody, he did it with courage, but he did it with love because he had their best interest at heart. Listen to this verse in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person. How? Gently. You should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. And I believe Paul's talking about a lot there when he says, be careful that you might also be tempted. I think in part he's saying, be careful that you might be tempted in the same sin that they're in, Right? I mean, if you're a, re a recovering alcoholic and you're struggling with addiction and breaking free from that and you go to help rescue someone who's in a drunken stupor at a hotel and you go by yourself and there's a bunch of half empties all over the room, come on, you need to be careful in that setting that you don't fall into your own temptation because that's your own vulnerability. Come on, you take somebody with you. You with me? This idea of being conversationally courageous and, and stepping into the moments that God would ask us to step into, we've got to do it wisely so don't, we don't fall prey to the same temptation. But I think Paul's also saying don't fall prey to the temptation of doing nothing. He's saying don't fall prey to the temptation of indifference. Don't fall prey to the temptation of cowardice. Don't fall prey to the temptation of looking at someone and saying, let somebody else do it. A life who's held an account is conversationally courageous. Do you ever find it interesting that so many times in the church, we're not afraid to rail against people that maybe are struggling with an alternative lifestyle? Come on. We're not afraid to rail against people who might have a political persuasion that we don't like. But yet there are people in the room sometimes that maybe have hurt our feelings and we'll harbor that resentment for years on end before we'll speak up and say anything. There's a hypocrisy that's in our lives sometimes. We appear to be courageous over here, right? And then the ones that really matter, come on. The ones that, that are people that are right next to you. God says, hey, those are people in the room. How about trying talking to them? How about being honest about your feelings with them? 
How about being willing to invite someone to Starbucks because you got that new fancy app on your phone and you can pick up the tab and you can say, you know, when you said this, it made me feel this way. What would begin to happen in some of your relationships if you would begin to exercise some courage to have some conversations that you need to have? And if you lack conversational courage, I'm telling you, it's a sign of a life that's not held well in account. Luke 12, we're not going to read through this. I want to give it to my note takers. Luke 12, 42 to 48. Write that down. 12, 42 to 48. It's a great parable that talks about the idea of how we need to be a warning to those people that are in the house with us. Does your life have flow? What conversations have I been putting off? Me to them, and which ones have I been avoiding them to me? What God promptings have I been ignoring? A life that's held in account is conversationally courageous. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. A life that's held in account is irresistibly intriguing. Jesus' life was irresistibly intriguing. Mark 1.33 says that the whole town came out to see him. They were absolutely intrigued by who Jesus was and the marked difference between his life and the people in the world. From the moment that you made a decision to become a devoted follower of Christ, ask yourself some questions. How has my life changed? How am I different? Does my life generate intrigue in others? Does my example, does my value system, come on, does my conversational courage and my halting humility give people pause? Is there an irresistible intrigue about our lives because we just do things a little bit different from the rest of the world? This verse here is in 1 Peter 4, 3 through 4a. It says, you have spent enough time in the past doing what ungodly people choose to do. You lived a wild life. You longed for evil things. You got drunk. You went to wild parties. You worshiped statues of gods. The Lord hates that. Come on, ungodly people think that it's strange when you no longer join them in what they do. They want you to rush into the same flood of wasteful living. I'm going to invite you to stand with me tonight. Come on, is there something about your life that causes other people to wonder, what is it about them that makes them different? We're going to sing this song as we close the service tonight, but before we do that, I want to share this verse with you. It's in John chapter 6. We were on vacation. I was, you know, praying about this series, and uh, one of the things I felt like God spoke to me about while we were away was that we were going to end every service this summer in the same way. Not with this same verse, but with the same moment. Come on, this is in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 38. It says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those who he has given to me, but should raise them up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This isn't important. I want you to hear this. If you want to be a person who has life flowing out of you, it all starts with having heaven promised to you. Let me say that again. 
you want to be a person who has life flowing out of you, it all starts with having heaven promised to you. And we're going to sing this song tonight, and I'm going to come back up in just a minute. We're going to invite you tonight. If you have never taken a step to make a vow of devotion to Jesus Christ, come on, this Saturday looks pretty good to me. Because God wants life to flow out of you. He wants heaven to be promised to you. He wants all the things that we've been talking about tonight to not just be ideas in your head, but to be a living reality in your heart. Let's worship in this song together.